Once more, welcome everyone. Welcome all of you joining us by way of video. We love you guys in Perry, Oklahoma. More than anything in the world, you're our brothers and sisters, and we thank you for, for being a part of, of what we do here in Woodburn. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. I want to start a new series entitled The Doctrine of the Cross. Not a very creative title, uh, but this isn't a very flashy series. I just want to take you a little bit deeper than we normally do, and I want us to talk about the cross. Uh, I brought this one out of my office. Those of you who know me, been in my office, if you've ever been in trouble and sent to the pastor's office, uh, then, uh, then you know I, I collect crosses. I have, I have uh, uh, quite a few of them. This one, I think, was handmade by Brother Ken Sparks, one of our guys who made this uh, for me probably 15 years ago. Um, I, I love the cross. I love crosses. Uh, the cross for me is a symbol of what Christ has done for me. It's a symbol of the mission uh, that, that Christ came on the earth to fulfill and also the mission that he leaves for us. That's why many of the crosses in my possession come from mission trips, either yours or, or, or mine. Uh, but but the, the cross serves as a really good symbol to me of Christ and his mission and everything that he's done for us. The, the cross is for us a symbol, but one of the things we have to get past is, is the way that the cross now for us is a very, very familiar symbol. And, and in that regard, we may be missing some things about what the cross represents. Uh, would it surprise you if I told you that the, the earliest Christians, the early church, never used the cross as a symbol? It took probably two, maybe 300 years before Christians began to use the cross as a symbol of their faith. Do you know why? Can you think of why? Why early on they would not have used this as a symbol of Christ and what he had done? Well, because they knew what crosses were and they knew what crosses were for. You with me? The earliest Christians actually had a number of symbols for their faith, but none of them were the cross. The very, very first symbol was what we call an ichthus or a fish. It was a fish. The most ancient and primitive symbol of the Christian faith is the ichthus, the, the fish. Sometimes they used an anchor, sometimes they used a ship, or sometimes a lyre or a harp, but, but never a cross. Because the cross was for them uh, something they knew, something they had seen a lot of. Understand, the cross was an instrument of torture and execution. You know that, right? It was an instrument of torture and execution used throughout the Roman Empire. Lots and lots and lots of people died on crosses. And so the cross was not necessarily the symbol that they used for their faith. Now, it figured very, very importantly into their preaching, and that's what we have to get back to. It figured very importantly in their preaching, but it was not a symbol of faith and beauty and all of the things that it probably represents for you and me. It was a shocking kind of scandal that the God that they worshipped had actually died on a cross. So I want us to think for a, a few Sundays now, I want us to get back to what the cross represents, not just to us, not just what it means to us, but what it means to God the doctrine of the cross. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. In this particular passage, as Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, maybe you can begin to get a sense of how difficult it was to proclaim that Christ, the Son of God, had been crucified. How difficult it was to get people past the point that, that this suffering, helpless victim bleeding on a cross was somehow a revelation of God himself. A scandal. Very, very difficult to proclaim in the ancient world. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is, say the word, foolish. 
The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very, say the word, power. We who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Underline that verse, that's important. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only in the Lord. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this. So you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. We did devote all of this week to, to children's ministry here at Woodburn, and, and it, was, it was phenomenal. I love, love, love being a, a pastor to children. I, I enjoy that very much. Uh, children are changing. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, it's not exactly as it was back in, even in my day. When, when we were kids, honestly, me and everybody I knew, we were dumb. Uh, just, just, just dumb. Um, we, we were in school and we were learning and we were growing. But, but, but honestly, the, the information now that bombards our children is overwhelming. Uh, children have access to, to nearly all the wisdom of the world, uh, literally, and, uh, and and it's bewildering for them. But, but also in some ways, very impressive to see their, their really, really bright minds grow. One of the exercises this week in, in the individual children's groups was that they were allowed to fill out a card and indicate if they had questions about the Bible that they wanted to talk to somebody about. And so kids will sometimes check that box, they have questions about the Bible, and then they send them to me. 
that they send them to me. Uh, I, I love it, and I don't have time to tell you about some of their questions, but, but I'm telling you, they're asking questions that we never ask. Some of us haven't asked yet, but, but, but kids in many ways are already there. That They're asking deep, that they're asking abstract, they're asking real genuine questions about God, about Christ, about the Bible, about everything we preach. Your children, preschoolers, are asking questions some of you have never asked. I want to encourage that. I, I, I want to encourage that. When I was growing up and whenever I asked questions, I often felt like questions made the grown-ups uncomfortable and they would find ways to sort of shut us up and, and never to ask those questions. Sometimes I was made to feel guilty for asking questions as if questions always equal doubt. And my questions have never equaled doubt. I just have questions. And I wanted a place to ask questions. And I want our children to feel free to think big thoughts and ask big questions because I want to help them understand that he's a big God. So I was talking to one of the little fellas in, in Bible school this week, and I was trying to affirm his asking giant questions. And this kid is asking giant questions, big questions. And I wanted to convince him that his big questions could never be bigger than a great big God. And so I explained to him, I used an analogy that's been used, I guess, forever. I just tried to help him understand how big God is. And so I said, let's say that, that a little ant crawls up to your foot. It's kind of corny, but, but it works with kids. That there's an ant that crawls up to your foot. And this ant maybe wants to know you and wants to understand you. But, but when the ant crawls up to your foot, all he sees is foot. You know, the, the ant's eyes are not big enough to take you in. The, the, the little bitty ant brain has no ability to fathom everything that you are. So when that little ant crawls up to you, you are just too big for that ant to possibly conceive. So much bigger. And, and you understand, right, that when it comes to God, it, it's, it's that kind of scale, only, only infinitely, infinitely vaster. That, that God is so much bigger than we are. The scripture doesn't call us little ants. Actually, the scripture calls us specks of dust. Before God, we are dust. And honestly, that's still paying you a compliment. You understand? To say that we're a speck of dust before God, that still pays you quite a compliment because God is still so infinitely, infinitely greater and bigger and stronger and more powerful than you and I are. Infinitely beyond us. But he wants us to know him, and we long to know him and love him. And this is what you have to understand. God, who is so far beyond us, could not possibly be known to us unless he makes himself known. You understand? Like the ant, like the speck of dust, you and I do not have the capacity... We do not have the questions. We would not even begin to understand that he is there because he is that far beyond us, the maker of the multiverse. You understand? You're never going to think your way to him. You're never going to somehow by the power of your mind or the power of your physical strength, you're never ever going to make your way to God. That's why it's sort of puzzling when people sometimes say things like, you know, all roads lead to God, or, or, or they talk about it as if all the religions are the same, and every, every single path, if you just walk your own path, that path will lead you to the God within you. Oh, oh come on, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? There's no path within you. As a matter of fact, there's no God within you. Did you understand? 
that this is foolishness. This is foolishness. That somehow there's a path that starts with you that's going to lead to God. The only path that would lead us to God is the path that comes from God. You understand? It only moves one way. The wisdom, the, the revelation, it only comes from God. We cannot figure him out. And we're not going to stumble our way into understanding him. The only way that God can be known is if God chooses to reveal himself to us. And that is exactly what he's done. That's the good news. That's the beginning of wisdom. That God knew us, longed to know us, and longed for us to know him. So God steps down. This is the gospel. This is the good news. There is a God. He is real. He is not unmoved. He is not somehow unconcerned. God comes down so that we can know and understand him. God becomes one of us. No other religion, no other human wisdom, nothing proclaims anything like this. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God comes down. God comes down so that we can see him, so that we can hear his voice, so that we can know his ways. God becomes one of us, and God comes down in the person, in the man, Jesus. This is the gospel. But it's more than that. Of all things, it's not just that God becomes a man. He does, but... But it's not just any man, it's, it's, it's the man Jesus. But it's even more than that. Um, if you look at history, like, like the few scraps outside of the Bible, the, the few scraps, the references to Jesus Christ outside of the Bible, pretty much the only thing historians ever wrote about him was that he was crucified. About the only thing the world ever noted about him, he was, he was crucified. Lots and lots of people were crucified. The, the Roman Empire perfected crucifixion as, as a means of torture, as a, a means of public execution. It, it was one of the most shameful, painful, humiliating, shocking ways to die. So it's not just that as Christians we, we point back to, to Jesus and say, this is God, this is who God is. Honestly, we're pointing back to a man, a, a bleeding, seemingly powerless victim on a cross, naked, beaten, despised, humiliated, and abandoned by God himself. We point to this man on a cross and we say, this is God. Do you understand why this is scandalous and shocking to the world? Not just, not just Jesus is God, but this bleeding, dying, humiliated man of sorrow and suffering, this is God. So when God chooses to reveal himself, when he wants us to know him, he shows himself as a crucified God. He shows himself as a man of sorrows and suffering. He reveals himself as a dying, suffering man. What does this even mean? How do we begin to understand and fathom? How do we wrap our brains around this? 
there was a family reunion taking place off the coast of Florida. There was a, a, man, a, a man named Jimmy. He actually was an Olympic uh, decathlete, a, a very strong athlete, a, a, a very, very fit man. He had a little boy named Davey. And Jimmy and Davey were playing in the ocean there. The family was on the beach. There was a particular cousin, his wife, their daughters. The family was on the beach. And Jimmy and Davey were splashing in the waves. Um, while they were there, a, a, a riptide current came in. You all know about riptides? Uh, it's, it's a very strong undertow. When a riptide current comes in, into the waters where swimmers are, usually they, they get people out of the water because a riptide current is deadly. And it's just water, but it's a very, very strong uh, movement of the water beneath. And, and the problem with a riptide is it will, it will inevitably carry you out into the water. And people die caught in riptides because it's very, very difficult, very, very difficult to swim your way to safety. M many people just can't. The thing about a riptide is that it pulls you out. And no matter what kind of swimmer you are, you're never strong enough to somehow defeat the ocean. Do you understand? You're never stronger than the ocean. So no matter how strong a swimmer you are, you're not going to beat the riptide. So it's not just a physical strength thing. It's also a logical thing. When you're being dragged out away from the beach, your tendency is to want to make a beeline, to swim the shortest distance to shore. But that in itself will get you killed in a riptide. You can't swim toward the shore. That's the last thing you should do, even though that makes sense. They say that in a riptide, you're supposed to turn away from the shore and swim parallel to the shore. That doesn't make any kind of logical sense. If you want to get to the shore, it seems like you could swim to the shore. But the only way in a riptide to get to the shore is to swim parallel to the shore. That doesn't make sense. Jimmy, the father, the, the decathlete, and his son, Davey, were splashing the waves. And Davey, the little boy, got caught in a riptide and, and, and so quickly taken out as far out as he could go. And the father quickly understand what was happening. But again, he's an athlete. He's strong. He's a dad. He dove in the water immediately to go save his boy. And as soon as he went under, he realized that he was not going to be able to come up. He was not going to be able to get back to the shore. And he was not going to be able to reach his son. So being an athlete, he immediately started to swim as hard as he could. To swim as hard as he could toward the shore. But he was not stronger than the ocean. Do you understand? He could not get there. And in his mind, in that moment, it dawned on him, my wife is going to have a double funeral. My wife is going to bury me, and my wife is going to bury our son. She is going to stand at a double funeral. You're saying it's, it's that riptide effect, strength, logic will never ever save your life. It's going to have to take something else. It's going to have to take something else. And this is the kind of limitation that Paul is talking about when it comes to human strength, when it comes to human wisdom. If you're going to try to understand the cross and what God does for us at the cross, you're going to have to sort of change your, your categories of what makes something sound wise. And you're going to have to change your idea of what makes something powerful. Let's start with the wisdom part. Notice what Paul says. The message of the cross, verse 18. The message of the cross is, say the word, foolish. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are saved, we know it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, this is God talking here, I will 
destroy. I will confound. I will confuse the wisdom of the wise. So when God reveals himself as the the man on the cross, the dying, bleeding victim on the cross, one of the things you have to understand is that God is revealing himself there. God is trying to help you understand something about who he is. And the first thing you have to recognize is that God's wisdom confuses human wisdom. God's wisdom confounds. It is beyond human wisdom. God's wisdom What God knows is so far beyond what you know that when you see what God knows, it looks like foolishness to you. Let that sink in. God's wisdom is always going to confuse human wisdom. The president of Yale University a, a few years back gave the opening address to the freshman class that year. And he gave what actually was a very, very good speech. It was a very pro-education speech, and I like that. I love education. I love everything about learning. I do. But his refrain, what the president of Yale kept coming back to, is how these students would have to think for themselves. Think for yourselves. And he especially made that point strongly when he was talking about what he was calling values and what he called a philosophy of life. He said, we can teach you that E equals MC squared, and we can teach you the laws of physics and thermodynamics and mathematics. We can teach you those things, but we can't teach you anything about values, anything about the philosophy of life. For those things, you're going to have to think for yourself. Now, that sounds wonderful, and honestly, I've known some people who really ought to turn the thinker on, you understand? They really ought to try thinking, and I get that. I could say amen to that a little bit, but it's just that human idea that that you can somehow think your way to a philosophy of life, that when it comes to values, when it comes to morals, that somehow you can just think your way to that, and you're going to come out in, in a good place. That is exactly what God reveals at the cross to be foolishness. That's foolishness. God reveals a very different kind of wisdom at the cross, and and this is truth. This is where truth begins. Christ is the wisdom of God, Paul said. So so think about this. Think about how God's wisdom is revealed at the cross. First off, the the, the very basic truth is that God is. God is. There is God. So if you're going to understand truth, if you want a philosophy of life, then you recognize that at the cross, God reveals himself as the living God. He, He reveals himself. He steps down. God is real. God is there. But then beyond that, God reveals himself as a God who is not going to be content to live far away from us. Not going to be content to be beyond us, beyond our loving and our understanding. So God comes down. God condescends. He shrinks himself. God longs to be with us. His longing to be with us takes him to the point where he would suffer and die for us. And, And this is wisdom. But now keep going. God reveals to us that somehow our brokenness is is healed by his brokenness. And that doesn't make logical sense. At the cross, God reveals to us that by his stripes we are healed. In other words, his wounds heal my wounds. I don't know if that makes logical sense. At the cross, it is revealed 
to me that somehow his death, his death is for me. His death brings me life. I don't know if human wisdom would ever reveal that to you, that that, that this man's death 2,000 years ago somehow has to do with you. His death brings you life. You know, really honestly, as, as a person who likes to think, the most amazing part of the cross for me is what Jesus says on the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's be really honest with you. I'm puzzled by that because Jesus is God. Understand? Jesus is God. I believe that with all my heart. And, and so just begin to think what it means when, when God steps down and, and is pushed out of the world he made to the point where he's hanging on a cross. And there on that cross, the crucified God, Jesus, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's a very strange thing. How can God abandon himself? How can God forsake himself we can answer that somehow by talking about the trinity which is truth that God is truly three persons one God but three persons God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit so so God is three in one at the very heart of God are these three beings in perfect relationship and perfect love and unity to the point where you can say they're one being one God but, but three persons So when God steps down and becomes Jesus, the the man, the God in the flesh, you understand there's still one God, but but there is Jesus and there is God the Father. And all of this is somehow happening inside the life of God. And so Jesus on the cross at that moment when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand? This is something unfathomable happening in, inside the Godhead, inside the very life of, of God. And I don't understand it. It's just beyond my understanding. If you get it, you explain it to me. But I love it. I just love it because I'll tell you one thing. If you live on God's green earth for very long, you know that feeling. You know what it is to feel forsaken by God. You know what it is to feel abandoned by God. That is what it is to be human, people. That is what it is to be a sinner. That is what it is to suffer the consequences of sin in the world. It it is to feel forsaken and and abandoned. And, And this is the mystery of the cross. That if God is truly going to take my sin on himself, if he's truly going to die in my place, if he's truly going to become like me, if God himself is going to understand what it is to be human like me and you, then somehow God has got to understand what it's like to be God forsaken. If God is going to understand what it is to be me, then God has got to somehow feel that abandonment by God. And so at the cross, somehow, mysteriously, beyond all human wisdom, at the cross, God somehow experiences that that abandonment that we all feel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out. I don't really understand that. I just know that if if he's going to be my savior, he's going to have to know what that feels like. 
that this is inside the life of God. My sin, my suffering, my tears, my death, my feeling of God forsaken is somehow all taken up and absorbed into God's self. This is what happens at the cross. You're not going to understand this with human wisdom. You're not going to think your way to that. This is a plan that comes from God's great brilliant divine mind and you would never ever figure that out that's why Paul says when I came preaching to you I didn't have a lot of really smart things to say I didn't even try to sound like a philosopher or a debater I just had the good sense to know that the only thing I got to preach is Christ and him crucified I just preached the cross because if I lift high the cross, then, then you're going to begin to see the wisdom of God. It doesn't have a whole lot in common with human philosophy, but it is the truth. It's the very wisdom of God and, and the power of God. The wisdom and the power of God. If God's wisdom actually confuses the, the wisdom of the wise, the wisdom of human beings, then understand, here's the thing about God's power. God delights in Hiding his power in weakness. This is what we learn about the God who is on the cross, that, that he hides his power in weakness. Now, now, now again, this just blows your mind, and it's not the way we would do things. If I were the most powerful being in the universe, y'all would all know. I mean, you would all know. I would be displaying my power. I would be bedazzling you every single moment of every single day because I would just love to watch you go, what? I mean, I would just love to blow your mind every moment, but God doesn't do that. He doesn't overwhelm us with his power. He's not doing a trick a day just to impress you. God hides power in weakness. So when we point to this crucified, bleeding, dying, suffering, helpless, pathetic man on a cross, we still say this is the power of God. How is that power? There's a Mega church pastor, I won't name him, he's, he's famous. Mega church pastor who was on a tour of ministries in the Twin Cities up in uh, Minneapolis. He was touring a particular ministry called the, the Open Door, Church of the Open Door, I believe. It's a, it's a ministry, a social ministry helping the poor, the homeless. It's, it's an amazing, amazing ministry, a, a church. As the mega church pastor, the man, you know, with the church of thousands, trillions, whatever, the big famous guy on TV. As he was touring the Church of the Open Door, he made the statement, he said, you could never grow a church with this kind of people. He said, you could never, ever grow a church with this kind of people. Now, on the one hand, he's seeing something absolutely true. It takes money to grow a church in the way that this man was talking about growing a church, and these people don't have it. It takes some connections. It takes some political kind of mojo to, to grow a church in the way this pastor is thinking about growing a church. And, and he's right. These people don't have that. They're homeless. They're, they're poor. They're helpless. They have nobody. But you know what? He may be a pastor, and God bless him. But he's got it all wrong. This is what God reveals to us when he 
allows himself to be pushed out. The, the maker of the multiverse, all, all the power in heaven and earth, he allows himself to be pushed out of creation to, to, to the point of dying on a cross. This God with all power becomes powerless for, for you and me. And, and it reveals to us that he identifies with the powerless. He, he actually identifies. When he wanted to come down and become one of us, he didn't become a king. He didn't become a politician. He didn't become a game show host. He became a rather nameless, unfamous man of poverty who died on a cross between two thieves, and that is the power of God. He, he still identifies with the powerless. He still identifies with the poor. He still identifies with those that the world, the ones that the world throws away. This is the power of God. This is how it operates. Y- y'all remember elementary school and how we used to pick teams to play dodgeball? Y'all remember that? It, it was awful. Um, back at Rich Pond in, in the day. Uh, awful because I was me. Uh, Coach uh, Boyd, uh, Mr. Boyd would always get like two of the really sporty guys, uh, athlete, athletic guys to be team captains, and that was always really cool, you know. We'd get two guys like the fastest, strongest, best guys, and, and they would be team captains, and then they get to stand back, and, and they'd line the rest of us, you know, you know, peons up against the wall, and we're lined up against the wall, and then these two guys, the cool guys, they get to pick their teams one at a time. Do y'all remember this? Okay, who got to be the athletic, awesome guy picking teams? Hands, anybody? Nicole, you were the awesome guy picking teams? <laughs> awesome. Any peons in the room that up against the wall with me? Yeah, yeah, there we were. Yeah, we're awesome today. Actually, we're still not. Yeah, oh gosh, I just remember that. And so th- these guys, they, they just can... They know you, but they can just look inside you up, and they're looking down through there. And, and the first people to get picked are who? All the other big, fast guys, all the other guys who are awesome athletes. They get picked first, and what happens next? When all the awesome guys are picked, who gets picked next? Awesome girls, and, and they're always some. I mean, they, they could, you know, kick my tail. These awesome girls who are fast and, and, and great ball throwers. So then the, all the awesome girls get picked, and then who's left? Unawesome girls and future pastors. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Nobody, nobody wanted me on any team. Ever. Ever. Nothing. A spelling bee, but that just makes me the biggest nerd in, in the world. Um, do y'all remember that? Did you just remember that? Because that's how human beings think of power. That's how human beings judge importance. We, we look at each other and we compare ourselves to one another and, and we go for the strong and we're very, very attracted to the coordinated and we're very, very attracted to those who are fast and, and can throw a ball. But you need to understand that when God chooses his people, God doesn't work like that. God does not line up the human race and then start taking out the strong and the smart and choosing those for himself. Paul says God does exactly the opposite. God will begin with the ones nobody wants. Those are the ones that God takes first. He takes the ones that nobody else wants, the outcast, the poor, the uncoordinated, the unintelligent. You understand? The nameless, the faceless, all of those who are handicapped and disabled and in any way undesirable to the world. God says, I'll take them first. 
I'll take them first, and then I will fill in with the others, but I will take the ones nobody else wants. This is how the kingdom operates. God always goes straight to the bottom of the barrel to gather his people. Do you know why? Do you know why God always goes for the bottom of the barrel people? Because it's the only kind of people there are when you're God. You understand? It's the only kind of people there are. God is not impressed with any of us. We are not impressing God with our wisdom. He is not impressed with your Facebook page or your Twitter feed. He is not impressed with that great selfie you took in the mirror last night. (laughs) Not impressed. He's not impressed with your resume, not impressed with your 4.0 grade point average, not impressed with your ACT score. He is not impressed with your yard beautiful as it is, not impressed with the fact that your handbag matches your shoes today and costs more than my house. God is not impressed. Not impressed. You may think you're wise, but from God's perspective, you are a speck of dust. You may think you're powerful, but from God's perspective, you are a speck of dust. God always goes for the bottom of the barrel people because it's the only kind of people there are. So when God wanted us to know him, he stepped down from heaven. He positioned himself on a cross and hung there with the criminal. Jimmy was an Olympic decathlete, went out into the water after his son to save his son's life. But as hard as he swam, he could not be more powerful than the ocean, and he continued to be dragged out, and his son was out of his sight. And and what went through his mind was, my wife is going to have to plan a double funeral. But he had a cousin who wasn't really an athlete or any kind of swimmer or any kind of smart guy. But but, but his cousin had been out in the water and knew that there was a sandbar. A sandbar out from where Jimmy and Davey had gone under. A a sandbar out from the shore, but a place where you could stand. And so his cousin swam out as fast as he could and put himself up on that sandbar where Jimmy and Davey could see him. And he just started saying, come to me. Come to me. Because if they would come to him, they could be saved. And he just waved his arms there on the sandbar where he could be seen. And he said, come to me. Come to me. And they they came to him and were saved. And, And this is what I'm telling you. This is what God has done for us on the cross. We were swept away, completely swept away by our sin, and we could not save ourselves. We were not going to save ourselves by our logic and wisdom, because the wisdom that, that resides inside our minds will never, ever take us the distance that we would have to take to reach God. You won't get there by human wisdom. 
God's kind of wisdom defies human logic. You're not going to think your way to him. And you're not going to ever somehow swim your way out of the undertow of sin. You can't save yourself. You're not going to be more powerful than the ocean. You just simply don't have that in you. You need a savior. You need a rescuer. You need a God who knows you and loves you. And so this is what he's done. It's the most amazing thing in all of the universe. God put himself on that cross where you could see him, where you could recognize him and know him and know his compassion and know his gentleness and know his abundant grace. He allows himself to be pushed out of his own creation and onto that cross. And on that cross, the God of the universe cries out, come to me, come to me, come to me. Christ, the very wisdom and power of God, Christ crucified. Pray with me. God, it is beyond us. When you displayed your greatest power on the cross, that, that doesn't even look like power to us. And when you display your great wisdom in coming, dying for us, suffering, bleeding, helpless, that doesn't look like wisdom to us. But, oh God, in your dying on the cross for us, we experienced the power, the rescue to save us. We cannot explain it. We can't fathom it. But we can experience the blessing that pours from it. So Lord Jesus, all we can say is thank you. Thank you. And all we can do is worship you. And all we can do is just close our mouths in awe, in humility, in gratitude for what you have done for us. Your wounds heal our wounds. Your brokenness makes us whole. Your death gives us life. And your abandonment by God brings us close to God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. We thank you, O oh God, for putting yourself in that place where we could know you and see you. We would never have looked for you there. But now we know. So Lord Jesus, give us grace to come to the cross, to kneel at the cross. Help us, oh God, to meet you at the cross and be saved. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.